Coming up next on Upstate's HealthLink on Air, a physician who takes care of people at high risk of developing breast cancer will tell us what can be done to prevent the disease. Starting to see more and more evidence that not only is breastfeeding healthy for the infant, but it really is a wonderful way for a mom to improve her own health, including lower risk of breast and ovarian. The medical director of the breast cancer program explains the value of having a team of caregivers. And a physical therapist explains how she helps survivors who have lymphedema. Complete decongestive therapy um, is for patients that have lymphedema in an arm or a leg. It consists of manual lymphatic drainage, which most people would liken to um, some massage therapy that's stimulating your lymph system to work harder. We'll also address life after breast cancer and what promising advances the future may hold right after the news. This is Upstate Medical University's HealthLink on Air, your chance to explore health, science, and medicine with the experts from Central New York's only academic medical center. I'm your host, Amber Smith. On a special episode dedicated to breast cancer care, we'll talk about diagnosis and the most common treatment options. Then we'll hear how lymphedema is treated in physical therapy. But first, the doctor overseeing the Breast Cancer High Risk Program will share what's important to know about prevention. From Upstate Medical University in Syracuse, New York, I'm Amber Smith. This is HealthLink on Air. About one in eight women in the United States will develop invasive breast cancer during their lifetimes. In the year 2020 alone, an estimated 276,000 women will be diagnosed with invasive breast cancer, and an estimated 48,000 will be diagnosed with a non-invasive form of breast cancer. Today on HealthLink on Air, we're going to explore what you need to know about prevention, screening, diagnosis, and treatment options with two of the most knowledgeable experts in Syracuse. Here with me are two upstate doctors, Dr. Ranjna Sharma, a surgeon and medical director of the Breast Cancer Program, and Dr. Jane Sharlam, who is the director of the Breast Cancer High Risk Program. Welcome back to HealthLink on Air, both of you. Let's start with um, prevention. Dr. Sharlam, are there things that women can do starting at a young age to help prevent breast cancer? Absolutely. Thanks for asking that great question, Amber. So there are many things we can do throughout a woman's life to lower risk of developing breast cancer. Certainly people ask a lot of questions about diet. Um, unfortunately, we don't have really great evidence right now but we're thinking that what we typically consider to be a healthy cancer prevention diet would include primarily plant-based, lots of fruits and veggies, avoiding red meats, avoiding a lot of processed meats, avoiding things like bologna, salamis, and that kind of thing. We feel it's very important to let women know that keeping alcohol to a minimum throughout the lifespan is probably a good idea. Even moderate drinkers of alcohol, more than three drinks a week, and especially once we get to one drink a day, we find that that will increase risk of breast cancer. And so many women don't know that, and I think it's important to get that out there. Other things that we know that reduce breast cancer risk are exercise, good routine exercise. We are now saying about 150 minutes a week of Heart-raising exercise doesn't need to be a triathlon, but getting out for a good brisk walk daily is always a good thing. And certainly when it comes to choices about having families, we know that the in tip in usually the younger a woman is when she has that first baby, the lower her breast cancer risk. But even more important is when she does have babies, if she chooses to have a child, is to breastfeed because we're starting to see more and more evidence that not only is breastfeeding healthy for the infant, but it really is a wonderful way for a mom to improve her own health, including lower risk of breast and ovarian cancer. When should a woman start getting mammograms? So there's a lot of controversy about that, a lot of information out there in the media, so I can understand that many women will feel confused when and they get conflicting information. Really, Right now, we have wonderful evidence. There's more evidence about breast cancer screening with mammography. There's more research on this than for any other cancer as far as screening. 
What we do know is that a woman who gets routine mammogram screening is less likely to die of breast cancer. We know it saves lives. Now there is that question that you asked, when should she start? So typically, although you'll see different recommendations, a woman should start discussing with her own doctor at the age of 40 when she should start. Sometimes you'll see guidelines starting at age 40, sometimes you see guidelines at age 50. And a woman needs to talk to her own physician to discuss the pros and cons of when to start. And it'll depend on things like, does she have a family history of breast cancer? How worried is she about breast cancer? And how worried is she about maybe having a false alarm with a mammogram and finding something that needs a biopsy that turns out fine, but she ends up saying, wow, I, that was really scary. I don't want to do that again. So sometimes a lot of her own background and her, her risk of developing breast cancer and her philosophies about screening goes into it. And that's why it's important for her to have a conversation about it. It's not a one-size-fits-all decision. But absolutely, age 40 is when we should start thinking about it. Now, I understand if you're high risk, you may have to start or may be recommended to start mammograms sooner. But how would somebody know if they're high risk? Okay, so... We look at risk factors for breast cancer, including, you know, certainly being a woman is a big risk factor for getting breast cancer. Men get it too. Um, age is something we look at. But when you want to talk about being high risk, that means you're higher risk than other women of the same age, typically. Family history is a big part of that. And things we look for in the family are a history of breast cancer in first degree relatives or even second degree, rel degree relatives. And by that, I mean aunts cousins, grandmothers, okay? And then when we, we talk about family history, we also want to ask about when the relatives were diagnosed. How young were these women? Were they before age 50? Were they after age 50? Were they really aggressive cancers? Is there any history of a gene abnormality, one of these mutations that we know makes a family more likely to get breast cancer? So when we see somebody with a strong family history, things like multiple relatives, young ages of diagnoses, even male disease. These are women that we want to test for genes, or at least talk about genetic testing. So anybody who has that kind of family history would be somebody I would consider potentially high risk. In addition, sometimes there are things that we find on biopsies that are perfectly benign and aren't cancers, but are sort of a red flag to us for somebody who might be high risk. So again, when a person's risk of uh, breast cancer depends on her own history, so it's a conversation that she should be having. You're listening to Upstate's HealthLink on Air. I'm your host, Amber Smith, speaking with Dr. Ranjana Sharma and Dr. Jane Sharlam. They are two of the experts providing care to patients with breast cancer at Upstate. If uh, you do identify someone who's high risk, are there measures that can be taken to help her reduce, you know, her risk of developing breast cancer? Sure, there are two things that I do with women who we've identified as being high risk in our program. We do screening and we do prevention. It's sort of two arms of our program that work together. Screening is, you know, looking at ways to find breast cancer early. So it won't prevent breast cancer, but we know that women, the earlier we find breast cancer, the less likely it is she'll need, you know, significant, really potentially harmful side effect chemo kind of thing. So she needs less treatment. And we know she's much more likely to survive from that cancer. So finding breast cancer early is huge. And that's what screening is all about. Then for women at high risk of breast cancer, we talk about prevention options. So everything that I said already as far as lifestyle stuff is important. But in addition to that, we now have medications we use to reduce her risk. And there's the option of surgery removing the breast tissue, prophylactic mastectomy before she gets breast cancer. All of this is very individualized. It depends on a woman's particular risk, her family history, and her philosophy and her feeling about all this. So if someone feels that they might be high risk, I'd highly encourage them to talk to their providers, their physicians about, you know, what option is right for her. Now, what about a woman who's been told she has dense breasts? What's important for her to know about mammograms? So sure, dense breasts is something that we've started to talk about more and more. When we say a woman has dense breasts, it's not necessarily how they feel on exam or how she feels with, with her own fingers. 
it's more about what the breasts look like on mammogram. Now, mammogram is just an x-ray. You see white stuff and black stuff. And the more white stuff is there, that's the milk-making machinery and supporting structures of the breast. And that looks very white. And all women that are young have a lot of that. And we expect their breasts to be very dense, to be very white. Over time, a woman's breasts become less and less dense. They become more and more fatty and look more black. Now, when women age and their breasts look a little bit more black, it's really helpful, helpful for us when we're doing screening because on mammogram, interestingly, most cancers look white. So if you have a black background and see that white cancer, it really pops out. But if a woman has very dense breasts and there's a cancer there, it might hide in that white tissue. So it's like finding a polar bear in a snowstorm. Now, as I said, our breast density tends to go down as we age, which is why mammograms work better in older women. But there are some women who, even at an older age, and by older, I think over the age of 40, in a time of mammogram screening, not that I'm calling anybody old, <laughs> even those women, um, they tend to have denser breast tissue. Their breasts look young on mammography. And now for those women, we might want to add something like a sonogram to help us see through better and help us better look at her breast tissue for screening. And for women that are higher risk, whether or not they have dense tissue, very often we'll add in a breast MRI because the breast MRI can see through that dense tissue. Now let's talk about diagnosis. Dr. Sharma, do most women come to be diagnosed through routine mammograms? Yes, yes, they do. Uh, most women are diagnosed um, in this modern age uh, through routine mammography. Uh, patients will uh, start screening mammography, um, you know, usually in their early 40s, maybe a little bit later. And uh, if there's an abnormality that's noted on the screening mammogram, then they will have further imaging with a uh, diagnostic mammogram, possibly ultrasound, possibly an MRI to further evaluate that abnormality. Now, we've heard that there are different types of breast cancer. Can you briefly tell us the difference between invasive and non-invasive breast cancer? Sure. Uh, so uh, the difference between invasive and non-invasive breast cancer has to do with whether or not the cancer cells have gone outside of the basement membrane, which is basically uh, covering surrounding the, the ductal uh, uh, tissue. And so if the cancer cells are still within the duct, it is considered non-invasive or in situ cancer. If the cancer cells have broken through the ductal membrane, then it is considered invasive cancer. And can you tell that on a mammogram or do you, do you need a biopsy to tell whether which one it is? Unfortunately, we can't tell the difference uh, between non-invasive and invasive cancer just on imaging. You do need a tissue sample to make that decision. It's a, um, a decision the pathologist will uh, assist us with under the microscope. So how much can you learn from a biopsy? What does the pathologist typically tell you? we can actually learn quite a bit from uh, biopsy specimens. So routinely we will do a core biopsy specimen. Uh, this involves uh, taking a needle and um, with some local anesthetic placing it into the abnormality, uh, either under mammographic guidance or ultrasound uh, guidance. Uh, sometimes even MRI guidance can be used depending on the abnormality. Uh, but the needle will go into the area of abnormality, take a sample, usually a few samples, and that gets sent to the pathologist for processing. Um, after a few days of uh, you know sectioning and staining and other processing procedures, they will give us a report and let us know what the uh, cells they are looking at um, are. And so if it is a breast cancer, they will let us know if it's a ductal cancer or a lobular cancer, which refers to the cell of origin of the cancer. They will let us know the grade, which lets us know how aggressive a tumor may look under the microscope. And they will also give us the receptor profile. So we're looking for proteins on the outside of these cancer cells, uh, which include estrogen, progesterone, and the HER2 new protein, which will assist in medical decision-making for the patient. So you really need that information before you can even advise a patient what you recommend. Yes, and honestly, now even more than ever, uh, we have so many different ways in which we can administer therapy and the different orders of the various modalities that are utilized that it really is important to have all that data up front so that we can offer the patient the best treatment plan possible. Now, what is staging and, and why is that important? So staging will let us know that uh, the breast uh, 
tumor has remained within the breast or has it left the breast and possibly gone to the lymph nodes or other parts of the body. Uh, the initial way that we learn about uh, where the tumor is at is by uh, evaluating the underarm lymph nodes, the axillary lymph nodes. So initially they may be evaluated with imaging, uh, but uh, they will also be evaluated with clinical exam uh, when the patient comes in for an appointment. Surgically, uh, if there is nothing on clinical exam or on imaging that would be suspicious, then uh, the surgical procedure is called a sentinel lymph node biopsy, where you would sample a few lymph nodes in the underarm area for evaluation to determine if there are any cancer cells present there. This is Upstate's HealthLink on Air. I'm your host, Amber Smith, and with me are two of Upstate's breast cancer experts, Dr. Ranjna Sharma, a surgeon who is the medical director of the program, and Dr. Jane Sharlam, who oversees the Breast Cancer High Risk Program. Well, this would be a good time for me to ask you about the value of coming to an academic medical center like Upstate that includes a cancer center. If a woman has a suspicious finding on her routine mammogram, how would you advise her to choose the doctors for her care? You know, I do believe that having your care in a cancer center or an academic medical center is very useful and important, especially in this day and age. Uh, there is the opportunity to be evaluated and cared for by multiple specialists who are experts in their area uh, and all involved together to take care of a patient and offer a treatment plan. It offers a very comprehensive and coordinated way to develop a treatment plan and also allows us to individualize care for each patient. And I think people pretty much expect that screening and diagnosis and treatment are part of the care, but I believe Upstate is rather unique in having the high-risk program that Dr. Charlem told us about. Um, I'd like to also ask about some services people might not think about until they need them. Fertility preservation. We, I mean, right, is that available and needed? Do you have patients that end up partaking of that? Yes, definitely. So in our uh, multidisciplinary team, we have surgeons, breast medical oncologists, breast radiation oncologists, geneticists, uh, fertility specialists, nutritionists, uh, survivorship uh, team members. Uh, we have social workers. We have psychologists. We have uh, imagers, pathologists, uh, anyone that would be important uh, to the care of a patient with a new diagnosis of breast cancer is included in our team. And together, we review a case. We uh, review imaging pathology. And we, the clinicians will meet the patient as well and develop a coordinated uh, treatment plan for the patient. And as you mentioned, in a multidisciplinary program, uh, such as at a cancer center or an academic medical center, we do have the ability to utilize resources from various specialists when we're taking care of patients. You mentioned the fertility preservation program. Um, so many of our patients are you know, still on the younger side and may not be uh, completed uh, child rearing and childbearing, I should say, and having their families. And so they may still wish to have a pregnancy in the future. But unfortunately, sometimes with some of these uh, cancer therapies that may make it more challenging to do so. So if we can identify those patients uh, prior to the initiation of any treatment, we can have them see the specialist and discuss what their options are, just so that there, there may be opportunities that they were not aware of um, in the future should they want them. We'll be right back after this short break. You're listening to Upstate's HealthLink on Air. Upstate's HealthLink on Air. I'm your host, Amber Smith, talking with the medical director of the breast cancer program at Upstate, Dr. Ranjna Sharma, and also the director of the breast cancer high-risk program at Upstate, Dr. Jane Sharlam. Now we're going to turn to treatment, and in, term of tr in terms of treatment options, specific recommendations are going to differ from patient to patient, but I wanted us to go over some of the most common treatments that might be recommended. Uh, Dr. Sharma, is surgery always necessary? So I will say that, uh, yes, um, in most cases, surgery is necessary. There are certainly um, a small subset of patients who may not be able to tolerate a surgical procedure or tolerate the anesthesia or have certain medical comorbidities that may make surgery riskier uh, for them. And so in those patients, we may um, think of another treatment plan, but that usually is outside of the standard of care. The standard of care for most patients diagnosed with breast cancer does include surgical management. 
sometimes we use medical therapy prior to surgery and sometimes we use medical therapy after surgery. So the order may change for an individual patient, uh, but most people do have surgery as part of their treatment plan. Well, let me ask both of you in terms of if a woman is faced with a decision between a lumpectomy where, where just the cancer is removed versus a mastectomy where the whole breast is removed, how do you help someone decide between those options? The first piece of um, information that we would want to know is the size of the tumor in relation to the size of the breast. This is the tumor to breast ratio. Uh, depending on the ratio, we can estimate whether or not we would achieve a reasonable cosmetic outcome with offering a lumpectomy. Uh, if we felt that we could not achieve a reasonable cosmetic outcome, then we may not offer a lumpectomy for that patient. Um, other things we may consider are if the patient has a known uh, gene mutation that may come into the decision making. Um, and then um, if a patient has more than one site of cancer in the same breast, that may also come into the decision making. So if someone does have a mastectomy, does that remove the future threat of breast cancer coming back? There is unfortunately always a very small risk of recurrence even with a mastectomy. The reason is, is there are microscopically breast cells that may still remain that we are not able to visualize. And so those cells are still at risk for developing cancer in the future. Uh, most studies will quote a rate of one to 3% for local recurrence after a mastectomy. So it's very low. Well, let's talk about what radiation oncology offers. And so this is something that may be offered after or before surgery? Uh, usually after. Um, however, it can also be done at the same time as surgery. Uh, so we have um, a few different ways where we can deliver radiation therapy. Most patients who have a lumpectomy or breast conservation will have radiation therapy basically to sterilize the remaining breast tissue. Uh, after a mastectomy, you would need radiation if you had a very large tumor or heavy lymph node involvement or other uh, multiple high-risk features. But routinely after mastectomy, patients don't always need radiation therapy. Uh, radiation therapy can be uh, provided in a few different protocols. The standard protocol used to be approximately six, six and a half weeks, uh, Monday through Friday, about 10 to 15 minutes of treatment per day. Um, but over the years, uh, shorter protocols, uh, three and four week protocols have been developed. Here at Upstate, we also have a very exciting new uh, technology called intraoperative radiation therapy. This is basically a one-time dose of radiation therapy directly into the lumpectomy cavity at the time of surgery. So the surgeon would perform the lumpectomy, then uh, they would finish their procedure, the radiation oncology team would come in, perform the radiation therapy, and the patient would, be, would have completed radiation therapy in just one setting uh, with the operative procedure. So that might be an option for some women, right? Yes, yeah, it is an option for someone. Usually women with smaller tumors, uh, lower risk tumors, uh, more biologically favorable tumors. Now, how well does that work, the intraoperative option compared to the traditional? What, what are the outcomes like? So the outcomes um, uh, that we are able to measure, well, we look at recurrence and survival for most oncologic uh, studies. And in terms of the traditional form of radiation therapy given over six to six and a half weeks, we've been doing this for many, many years. So we have quite a bit of long-term data on that. So we know that this is safe and feasible in most patients. The newer protocols, and especially the uh, intraoperative radiation therapy where it's only given once at the time of surgery, is a, a slightly newer um, type of protocol. And in patients who are uh, appropriately selected, so these smaller tumors, lower grade, more biologically favorable, these patients tend to do well. And you know we don't see elevated risks of recurrence or survival issues down the road. But in other patients, uh, we just don't have enough long-term data to say. So I would say that if you're going to be utilizing a therapy that maybe hasn't been around as long, certainly have a conversation with your clini uh, clinicians and you know, make sure it's an appropriate therapy for you. Well, does every woman with breast cancer end up with some type of chemotherapy somewhere along the way? No, not necessarily. Uh, you know, we used to use just tumor size and lymph node status uh, to make those decisions, but now we have um, genetic assays that are commercially available. There are about four or five of them that can be utilized. And uh, these assays will let us know what is a patient's individual risk for breast cancer recurrence. And if a patient has a very low risk of recurrence, it may be felt that chemotherapy would not be beneficial. If they have a higher risk of recurrence, then chemotherapy probably would be part of their treatment plan. 
What about hormone therapy? So many women are also candidates for hormone therapy. This is based on the receptor profile that we mentioned earlier. So if a patient is positive for estrogen and or progesterone, they're a candidate for uh, hormone therapy or endocrine therapy. Let me remind listeners, this is Upstate's HealthLink on Air. I'm your host, Amber Smith, and my guests are Dr. Ranjna Sharma and Dr. Jane Sharlam. They are two of the physician leaders who take care of patients with breast cancer at Upstate. Now, we've been talking and we tend to think about breast cancer in women, but there are men that develop breast cancer. Um, can you tell us how those cases come to light? Dr. Charlam, some of your patients, your high-risk patients are men, right? Absolutely. Well, I have men in our high-risk program. Typically, they're men who have a family history of breast cancer and have been identified to carry a gene mutation. Um, even though we need to be mindful, men that are high risk, even though they can be very high risk compared to their peers, to, to other men, they typically aren't higher risk compared to other women. Still, these are men that we follow routinely. Most men that we diagnose with breast cancer, we find it out in clinical exam or physical exam, or a, a man himself will say, hey, what is this that's growing here? It's far easier, as you can imagine, to feel a mass and a man who doesn't tend to have as much breast tissue and fatty tissue around the chest area that might hide that. So usually it's something that someone feels when they come to light. Are the treatment options the same for a man as for a woman? I mean, would he face potentially surgery and maybe radiation, maybe chemo? Those are all absolutely things that are on the table, including hormonal therapies, yeah. Well, let's talk about survivorship. What is life like for someone who's survived breast cancer? Can they resume their previous life or are there limitations that they have to be aware of? Sure, I think it, we need to be mindful that no two women are alike and no two breast cancers are alike. And there's a wide range, if you can imagine, somebody that's diagnosed with very advanced disease that needs a lot of treatment is going to have a very different course and a different outlook than somebody that finds it very early and has had very minimal treatment. So there's no one size fits all. And I think that's what we're mindful of in our multidisciplinary programs as well. We talk about not so much survivorship, but thrivership. We want our patients to go on not only to maybe consider getting back to a baseline, but also considering looking at their whole life and looking at this as an opportunity to thrive. So when we look at a person, a woman or a man who's been through breast cancer treatment, we start by saying, okay, what are your goals and what are the treatments you've had and how do they impact your life? Some of the treatments like chemotherapy can have certain side effects that we need to watch out for. Things can affect other organs like our kidneys, our liver, our heart. And then there are other things like radiation that can affect the skin and can affect risk for heart disease and lung disease down the road. Certainly, we're always very mindful of that hormonal therapy because there are side effects of that potentially. And we work with our patients to manage those side effects. Sometimes they're associated with bone pain. Sometimes it puts a woman at higher or lower risk of osteoporosis. So we'll monitor for bone density. we we'll monitor her health overall. And then we use our survivorship uh, time to focus on healthy lifestyle. A lot of the things that I spoke about as far as breast cancer prevention will also help a survivor or a thriver to go on and live a more robust and healthy life, preventing further cancers and further disease altogether. So a cancer history can increase your risk for other medical problems. So it sounds like it's something you're going to need to stay on top of with your healthcare providers, right? So they're aware that you have this history. Um, but does it mean that you're at a higher risk for getting another cancer? If you, if you had breast cancer and you survived it, um, you know, are you at higher risk for colon cancer or other types of cancers? Sure. A lot of that's going to depend on the individual patient, of course. Right now, we are looking at when we have a patient diagnosed with breast cancer, very often we're going to go ahead with genetic testing, looking at a range of genes associated with both breast and other malignancies in hopes of identifying other risks of other cancers. So it will be individualized, but that's something we're always mindful of. And, you know, I keep using this word individualized because it's true. You know, when every woman finishes up her treatment or when she's about to finish up her treatment, our 
office, our you know the breast cancer program will provide her with a treatment summary for her to keep and roll to her other providers, so everyone can be on the same page as far as what treatment was given and when and what she might be at risk of and what she should watch out for. And I think that's a very important component of being at a good breast center where they're going to be giving um, this kind of information to the patient to empower her to go on with, with a healthy life as much as she can. You know, risk of another breast cancer is something that is always on a woman's mind. Can my breast cancer come back at the breast area? Or might it come back long-term down the road, years, even decades later, we can find breast cancer popping up as metastatic disease in bones and lung and liver. And that can be a very scary prospect. So we want women to know their bodies and know what to look for with that. At the same time, keeping in mind how likely or how unlikely that is for her in particular and doing everything we can to help prevent that. Now, what about a breast cancer diagnosis? Is that something that a woman should share with other members of her family or extended family, aunts or daughters, um, if it's something that could influence someone else's health care, right? Is that something that is needed? Absolutely. And, you know, we're always mindful people have a right to their privacy, but especially in these cases when a gene mutation is involved or may be involved, especially when someone is younger than the age of 50 at the age of diagnosis, I think it would be prudent for that patient to share her information with her family, both women and men, so that they know to talk to their own physicians and talk about their risks of developing breast cancer and perhaps to see if there's something they want to, might want to do differently if that risk is elevated. Well, before we wrap up, what can be said about the therapies that are on the horizon? Dr. Sharma, are there treatment breakthroughs that you foresee? Yes, there are some exciting uh, potential therapies in the future. There's a lot of attention that's been directed toward uh, breast cancer vaccines. And so the thought is that, you know, could there be a vaccine developed for patients who have had breast cancer to prevent a recurrence? And if there could be something like that developed in the future, could that sort of philosophy be applied to a vaccine to then prevent breast cancer at all? And so these are very exciting opportunities. There are a lot of very uh, amazing, intelligent people researching this idea right now. And so you may hear more about breast cancer vaccines in the future. Another area where there's um, up and coming research is breast imaging. Um, so we're trying to uh, understand and develop different ways to image the breast. And uh, one uh, newer concept is contrast-enhanced mammography. This has been around for a few years and many institutions are starting to use it now. But basically, um, it's a mammogram uh, where the patient also receives IV contrast dye. And we're allowed to see, uh, we're able to see, I should say, the vascularization of the breast tissue, which can sometimes point us to abnormalities such as cancer. So we think um, over time, uh, different uh, imaging modalities will develop that will also allow us to better screen patients and also better diagnose them going forward. Are those things that you foresee in your lifetime? I mean, how, how soon do you think we'll see things like that? I think certainly with the imaging modalities, that's uh, you know happening as we speak. And many centers are utilizing some of these modalities um, on a research protocol and others are starting to put some of these into practice. Uh, but I, in terms of the breast cancer vaccine, I know that there have been some, you know, potentially promising trials that have maybe not, um, you know, uh, followed through and, you know, been as promising once the data was analyzed, uh, you know, going forward. So I think it's, um, you know, a little bit of trial and error with some research as, you know, with any research. And so I, I foresee that there will be advancements in that area, whether or not there will be a vaccine developed, I, I wouldn't know, but I think there's certainly be advancements in that area. Well, Dr. Charlam, do you foresee new or better ways to screen for breast cancer? Absolutely. As Dr. Sharma said, we're looking always at newer, better imaging. And as far as being in our lifetime, yes, I really think we will be. Even in you know my career in the last 20 years, there's been a huge change from you know basic film mammography to digital mammography to what we call tomosynthesis, which is a 3D mammography incorporating MRI on a routine basis for our high-risk patients. And now, as Dr. Sharma said, I think really the next thing on the horizon is going to be looking at combining an x-ray like a CT or an, a mammogram along with some contrast. We're also looking at using MRIs. Right now, it's kind of a cumbersome study. We're looking at using shorter, quicker MRIs. There's a lot that's coming down the pipe. 
that would be invaluable for us to be able to get more women, more high-risk individuals screened in a better way. Because again, the earlier we find this, the easier it is to treat the less side effects from treatment and the longer survival and the healthier survival. Well, this has been a very informative discussion. Thank you to Dr. Jane Charland, the Director of the Breast Cancer High Risk Program at Upstate, and Dr. Ranjana Sharma, the Medical Director of the Breast Cancer Program. I'm Amber Smith for Upstate's podcast and talk show, HealthLink on Air. From Upstate Medical University in Syracuse, New York, I'm Amber Smith. This is HealthLink on Air. Today, I'm talking about a condition that causes swelling in the arms or legs with a certified lymphedema specialist. Chris Bateson is a physical therapist at Upstate, and she takes care of many patients with lymphedema. Welcome to HealthLink on Air, Chris. Thank you. So we hear about lymphedema affecting women after they've been treated for breast cancer. Are the majority of people who develop lymphedema survivors of breast cancer? Um, As far as the patients I see that have arm lymphedema, yes, the vast majority have had breast cancer. But overall, from what I see, about 90% have leg lymphedema and about 10% are upper extremities or arm lymphedema. So it's it's mostly leg lymphedema, lower lower limbs. I definitely see more patients with leg lymphedema, yes, than arms. And just in general, Unfortunately, in this day and age, we have a fairly obese population, which is a big risk factor for it. So couple that with any kind of abdominal cancer surgeries, vascular surgeries in combination with that obesity, there's a lot more risk factors for people to get it in the legs than in the arms. Well, I know the condition causes swelling of the legs or the arms or both. What actually is happening in the body that results in this fluid build. It's a fluid buildup, right? It's a fluid buildup, yes. So with people that have lymphedema, their lymph nodes and or their lymph vessels are not working correctly. So in the case of patients that have had cancer, their lymph nodes have been removed and or radiated, and radiation can also damage the good lymph nodes and tissue that is left, and therefore they are not able to work up to par. So if you say have a cancer surgery, you normally have about 30 lymph nodes under each arm and they take seven or eight, those remaining 20 or so have to do the work of the original 30. So you can see their chance of getting overwhelmed increases with the more nodes that are removed. So if a node is removed or damaged, it doesn't grow back or regenerate or anything, you're left without it? Correct, yes. Of all the body systems, I feel like the lymphatic system is a bit of a mystery to most folks. Can you help us understand how the system works? I mean, what what do we need it for? What does it do for us? So it it is part of your immune system. So it is helping, you know, in protection from infections. Um, Obviously, one of the big things as far as lymphedema is that it helps to maintain body fluid levels. um, And it also helps to remove cellular waste from the tissues there. So... Yeah, if it's not working up to par, you could have issues with infections. You obviously could have issues with swelling. Um, And especially in the legs, if that swelling or lymphedema goes untreated, that increases your risk for infection and or open wounds, which then can cause a big vicious cycle if, if it's not treated and managed appropriately. In terms of lymphedema, is this a condition that comes on without warning? For people or are there symptoms? I mean, if if you have had your lymph nodes removed or they're, they've been damaged, maybe you have a sense to be looking out for this, right? Correct. Yeah. Yeah. There are definitely signs and symptoms that people can watch for, but unfortunately, a lot of people aren't educated to look for those. And just like a lot of other health issues, the earlier you catch it, the easier it is to manage. So especially in the case of women that have had breast cancer surgery, One of the earliest signs that they can look for is achiness, heaviness, soreness in the arm, especially when maybe they've done something more physical. Um, Another obvious sign would be swelling in the arm or the hand. 
And a lot of times people would notice it in the hand first, you know, their knuckles don't look quite as defined. You don't see the tendons and vessels in the back of your hand, or, you know, your rings are tight. It feels tight to make a fist. Those would all be early signs that uh, maybe you're starting to get early stage lymphedema. How soon after cancer treatment might these things start developing? You could literally start to notice symptoms as soon as you come out of surgery up to any point the rest of your life. <laughs> and unfortunately, there's not necessarily a set rhyme or reason who's going to see it really early or who's going to see it really late. Um, typically, the more extensive your cancer surgery, the more nodes they have removed. If you have radiation treatment, um, if you're obese or have some other um, medical history, comorbidities going on, those things would all increase your risk uh, of getting lymphedema at some point in your life after the surgery. I will say with breast cancer, the vast majority of patients that get lymphedema, about 90% are going to see it in the first three years after surgery. Okay. But again, you're still at lifelong risk, even if you haven't seen it. I've seen women 25 to 30 years status post-surgery and that's the first time they're noticing an issue with it. So the risk is there, unfortunately. It seems like soon after, you know, you might be aware of the symptoms to look for, but 30 years out, you've probably forgotten long ago what, you know. Yeah, you probably put it out of your mind. And and a lot of times, unfortunately, those people maybe get treated a little bit later because they're not even connecting it to their breast cancer at that point. They, I don't want to say they've forgotten about it, but definitely put it in the back of their mind. This is Upstate's HealthLink on Air. I'm your host, Amber Smith, talking with Chris Bateson of Upstate. She's a physical therapist with lymphedema certification. So let's talk about how lymphedema can be treated. Are, do all patients end up getting a referral to a physical therapist like yourself who has specialized training and knowledge about lymphedema? Unfortunately, not all patients do. Um... In general, there are not a lot of certified lymphedema therapists around, especially in more rural areas. Um, so a lot of patients do not get referred. We would love to see all patients, even for a pre-surgical baseline measurements, um, some education prior to their surgery, if possible. But if not shortly thereafter, even if they're not having any symptoms yet, we can go over what are the things to look for? What prevention things you can do? We can give them some exercises to help minimize their risk as well. Um, and that would obviously be the ideal thing. And then if those patients do notice early signs of lymphedema, they can give us a call back, we'll get them right in, and we can assess what's going on and treat them early when it's easiest for them and the least time consuming. Well, what, what should someone expect at their first visit with um, someone like yourself? What, what okay. should they prepare for? So if they are coming in just for, we see a fair number of patients for education only initially after they've had their breast cancer surgery or right before. So when they come in, we take some measurements of their arms. Um, we also have a device called the Impedamed that's a uses bioimpedance to measure how much extra fluid is in one arm compared to the other arm and it takes into account their dominant side versus their affected side. Um, so we can get a good baseline on them prior to surgery to have something to compare to. Um, so we would go over those measurements with them. We would go over a list of basically do's and don'ts, so simple things they can do to minimize their risk. So hopefully they don't need to come back and see me for anything. Um, I'll give them some exercises to do at home after surgery that can help their lymphatic fluid flow in that arm and that upper quarter of their, their chest and their trunk after surgery. Um, and we discussed, you know, are they somebody who does any airplane travel? Um, if you are, you really should have a compression garment on your arm or your leg if you are at risk for lymphedema whenever you fly. So we can, I can take measurements for those and help them get that ordered um, so that they're set for whenever they do have an airplane flight. So air pressure alters the fluid in our bodies? So yeah, on in the airplane cabin, the pressure is lower than it is when you or I are sitting right here. So everybody tends to swell a bit on a plane. Somebody that doesn't have any risk factors for lymphedema, when they get off, their body would compensate quickly. 
that may not be the case with somebody that is at risk for lymphedema or already has lymphedema. And that compression garment just helps keep fluid pushed out of the tissues of their arm or leg and improve the circulation in that limb so that it minimizes their risk for getting that swelling while they're on a flight. Now, what about um, exercise and things, uh, just walking? Are, are people with lymphedema in their legs encouraged to walk or discouraged? Um, definitely encouraged. There's kind of a happy medium you want to find with exercise. So you certainly don't want to go all out and overdo it. Um, but definitely starting slow and gradually increasing your intensity and duration of exercise is a good thing. Um, in general, a lot of low impact things. So walking, biking, swimming are all really good exercises. And even weightlifting and things is fine. Again, as long as you are progressing it slowly and appropriately. And for people that need help with that, you know, that's another thing that a therapist could help them progress if needed. Can you describe why wound care might be important? Sure. So a lot of the patients we see with leg lymphedema um, have some vascular dysfunction as well. And unfortunately, with the swelling in the leg, which stretches the skin, it damages the tissue, it's just not a healthy environment anymore, those people tend to get open wounds. So if they bump their leg against something, um, the skin opens much more easily. And when you have a lot of swelling in the leg, it's not a healthy environment for that wound to heal. So I do see a fair number of people that we need to do wound care on. And then a lot of times we'll use compression bandaging on the leg to help remove that fluid, improve the circulation, improve the health of the tissue, and that helps the wound to heal more efficiently and prevent it from returning. You mentioned the use of compression garments. Um, I've also heard of something called decongestive therapy. Is that yes. something you provide and can you tell us about it? Yep, we can, we can provide that. Complete decongestive therapy um, is for patients that have lymphedema in an arm or a leg. And basically, it consists of manual lymphatic drainage, which most people would like into um, some massage therapy. It basically helps reroute fluid away from the swollen or congested limb um, to the next adjacent areas of lymph nodes. It's a very light, gentle massage that's stimulating your lymph system to work harder. Um, on the average, you do that for 30 or 40 minutes on most people. And then we put their arm or their leg in a compression bandage. Um, which is another component of the complete decongestive therapy. And that helps keep the fluid moving up and out of the limb toward the open pathways that the massage has helped to open, as well as preventing refill of that fluid into the limb. Um, the bandage is about as thick as a cast and it stays on in general for about three days or so. We have the patient come back in, we take the bandaging off, we check their arm or their leg measurements, and continue to do the manual lymphatic drainage and the bandaging until we can get the limb as small as we can or as close to symmetrical to the non-involved side, if possible. And then those people would be fit with a compression garment that they can take on and off at home to shower and everything lifelong. So that would be their home management phase of the complete decongestive therapy after the clinic phase, the massage and the bandaging has been completed pretty much lifelong with regular replacement of the compression garments every six months or so. What about um, water pills? Are that, do, do people with lymphedema take the medications that help their body expel water? Some of them are on water pills for as part of a high blood pressure regimen or some other reasons. Typically, water pills in general are not ideal to treat lymphedema because what they're doing is they're pulling just the water away. But in this lymphatic fluid in the limb is a lot of other protein and a lot of other waste products, and the protein likes water. So if you have a water pill working to pull the water away, but the protein it's leaving in your leg is trying to pull the water back toward it, initially the water pill may win and you may think you're seeing an improvement, but what you're probably going to see is a firmness or a hardening of the tissue when the protein is left and there's no water component to it. And after a while, you're not going to see any difference. So you really need that compression to help get the protein and everything else out of the limb and then get them in an appropriate compression garment. So unless you need that water pill for some other 
comorbidity, the consistent compression on the leg is really considered, or the arm is considered the gold standard at this point to manage it long-term. So we covered a little bit of prevention, but let me ask you, are there things that you recommend people can do if they're susceptible to lymphedema that may help prevent it? Sure. Um, in the case of anyone at risk for upper extremity lymphedema or arm lymphedema, one of the big things is you do not want blood pressure taken on that side, and you really should not have any needle sticks in that arm. So if you're getting a flu shot, if you're getting blood draws, you really should have it done in the uninvolved side. Um, another thing, people that are diabetic and maybe doing finger sticks to check their blood sugars should not do that on the at-risk side either. They should use their other hand for that. Those are the biggest things to remember that they can help minimize their risk, as well as wearing a compression garment um, if you're doing any airplane travel. Well, before we wrap up, let me ask you how the pandemic has altered the way you provide care. Yeah, I mean, in our office in general, we did have a slowdown there for a while. Um, I actually was still seeing a fair amount of my patients because a lot of my work is hands-on. So unfortunately, some people that can do exercises via video with their patients doesn't work when I need to do some manual lymphatic drainage, I need to do wound care or compression bandaging. Um, so a lot of my patients were still coming in and continuing to get treatment. Thank you to Chris Bateson. She's a physical therapist with lymphedema certification at Upstate. I'm Amber Smith from Upstate's podcast and talk show, HealthLink on Air. This has been Upstate's HealthLink on Air, brought to you each week by Upstate Medical University in Syracuse, New York. Next week on HealthLink on Air, choosing something healthy to drink. If you missed any of today's show or for more consumer health podcasts, visit our website at healthlinkonair.org or do a podcast search for the phrase HealthLink on Air. Upstate's HealthLink on Air is produced by Jim Howe with sound engineering by Stephen Shaw. This is your host, Amber Smith, thanking you for listening. Music